You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. As producer and host of this podcast, I am happy to report that NCQA's second annual Health Innovation Summit was an amazing and astounding success. Incredible speakers, so many opportunities to learn, meet, and greet, and a health innovation pavilion featuring over 75 sponsors and exhibitors. And in our wonderful podcast studio, built on-site just for the summit, I was able to conduct over 20 interviews across three days, two of which I present here, and the rest of the interviews I'll play for you in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. In this episode, episode 118, we explore a much-discussed inside healthcare topic, interoperability. Within the process of healthcare digitalization, interoperability deals with the multi-lane, multi-directional transfer of electronic health records, or EHRs. Some people call them EMRs, electronic medical records. You might hear that later. But more and more in that transfer process, companies discover data they hadn't considered using or data needing refinement or labeling needing refinement and and data that tells stories of patients being overlooked and sometimes left behind. In the first interview, my guest and I discussed the best way to smooth the road to health equity form a patchwork of different types of healthcare companies that can safely and efficiently shepherd data along the patient journey. Later, I co-interview a team that discovered a disparity gap and closed it permanently. Their secret? Ask the community how to reach those patients. But first... On this show, we've discussed the benefits of going digital in healthcare, and we've talked about how to move digital records around the ecosystem. And certainly, many companies are burdened with thousands of EHRs and are facing the task of converting all those records into something tangible, digital, and readable by anyone outside their company. So, when considering this monumental undertaking, a company can feel alone in this effort. And that's where a company like MRO comes in. MRO is a clinical data exchange company working at the intersection of payers, providers, and other data requesters. MRO then helps data flow between patients and physicians requesting medical records. Its online platform, which they call CDXP, we'll talk about that later, serves providers all over the country. MRO helps companies manage the flow, integrity, and capacity of EHR and other medical data. But most importantly, MRO partners with other entities, including some of their competitors, all towards paving the way for interoperability. Mo Whitenauer, our guest, is MRO's chief product officer. She drives its product strategy and roadmap. Throughout her high-level career, Mo has helped develop tech-based strategies for managing medical costs and patient bills, trying to even things out for both sides while still striving to advance care quality. 
Mo graduated with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and economics from Smith College, and she got her master's degree in health policy and management from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. In October 2023, I interviewed Mo in NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast studio at our Health Innovation Summit in Orlando. And as you'll hear, when it comes to digitalization, teamwork makes the dream work. So talk about interoperability, and we're talking about the, the, the scary side of interoperability. What are people uh, nervous about? What are the frustrations that uh, clinicians are feeling or that the, the larger companies are feeling, large and small? Uh, some of the frustrations that they're having, not just in what they think interoperability solutions uh, might be that are maybe beyond them technolo technologically uh, or that they suddenly think they have even more work to do than they already have. Yeah, sure. So there's a couple of trends that are going on in the market that are making it uh, both an opportunity and a challenge for providers. So one is, you know, suddenly everybody's realizing how rich clinical data can be and how valuable it is. So, you know, in the past, it used to be, um, you know, payers require medical records for things like HEDIS and risk adjustment. But now you see patients um, taking more uh, advantage of their own medical care. Um, you see uh, life science companies requiring medical records. So there's just more and more entities doing so. Secondly, um, there's just more use cases as a result. So folks are realizing the richness of clinical data, even for things such as suspect analytics, which used to only rely on claims. There's more demand for, for the data. And then I'll lastly say that um, the promise of interoperability, it looks good on paper. The reality is that not every EHR is up to standard, is using the FHIR standards or whatever the standards out there are. Um, they all say that they are, but the reality is sometimes not the right data is located in the EHR or is documented in the right places according to the FHIR standards. And so it makes it much more difficult for the providers to be exchanging data just given the diversity of standards uh, and processes and technology. You know, the realization of all the things that you're talking about, that's part of the challenge is trying to communicate that to the clinicians and saying, we're trying to make things better. Here are the ways in which things will get better. And I, I would imagine some of the things they're seeing is just we're shifting from having file cabinets full of paper records to having drives full of paper records. And that's not a solution. Right. So we're talking about interoperability doesn't mean that suddenly we digitize everything and send it out there. It means that we digitalize right. where we develop processes for being able to, to break down that data and to utilize it in as many different efficient and effective ways as possible. So yeah. what, what's some, some of your comments on that? Yeah, so I, I think you know with meaningful use, when meaningful use came into play, there was a huge promise for what digitizing medical records was going to do. But we are finding that today we're in sort of what I'll call a digital prison, where the data are stored in a digital format in the EHR, but having EHRs speak to each other is more difficult than it would have seemed. Having different stakeholders access the right clinical data for the right purposes is more difficult. And that's really where MRO comes in because we've been partnering with providers from when they were doing paper to the digital era 
always in the business of exchanging data across the whole healthcare ecosystem. And so we know some of those challenges. I mean, we interact with over 200 EHRs. So I can tell you, you name an EHR and I'll tell you what standards they've adopted and whether you can be easily or more in a more difficult way be able to get a medical record from them. And what you can do with it. Yeah, and what you can do with it. And I'll also say that, you know, we care a great deal about privacy. Patients, rightfully so, they're taking back their power and saying, I don't want you to share my medical records if it includes this kind of data, let's say reproductive health, let's say mental health, let's say there's some reason why the patient feels that their data should not be shared. And so the complexity, it's not just about the technology. You can have all the technology in the world, but you have to understand the context and where and how you can share that data while honoring the patient's wishes and also making sure that the data is shared to the right bodies. What are the key elements that allow uh, CDXP as a platform to help with data integrity, data credibility, uh, and bi-directional uh, transfer of uh, health records? Sure. So CDXP stands for Clinical Data Exchange Platform. It mm -hmm. wouldn't be healthcare if we didn't throw in an acronym, so we, we created our own. And what it is, it is a uh, technology platform that we developed from scratch this year. Um, and it's really, I, I like to think of it as sort of the traffic cop of clinical data across disparate providers. So we interject with over 900 um, facilities, which is a lot, over 35,000 providers. And it enables us to, one, make sure that the right data ends up in the right hands, like I was saying with security, make sure that we are structuring the data in the right format for the right use cases. And then lastly, ensuring that there's a full, clear picture of where the data ended up so that the provider can know, hey, my data ended up with pair X or my data ended up with physician X for continuity of care. So it really does the aggregation and transformation of data and um, ensures that it is well-structured for the right use case, uh, depending on where it's gonna end up. But also tracking it for the sake of security. If people Absolutely. are asking if, if they're bringing up HIPAA or, or any kind of privacy laws, then that helps you to be able to track it on the back end, just, just in case somebody says, well, where did my data end up going and how is it being used? There's a lot of organizations out there that have the right technology, but if you don't ensure that disclosure, integrity, and security of the data, you end up with a, you know, I don't want to say the B word, a breach uh, on your hands. And that's what, what the security that we provide uh, does. And then secondly, we've been working with so many payers um, in the country for years and years. So we know the preferences or the data limitations of each payer so that we can provide the data in the right format for them. So how do you work with other companies in order to develop to develop the platform and to develop the uh, the payer hub as a snapshot. Sure. So we, because we interface with over 200 EHRs, we do partner with many EHR companies okay. to source the data. So we're we're providing that data liquidity from them. Secondly, I think if this is a, uh, a not a well known secret. But MRO actually powers clinical exchange and aggregation for other companies. So we often partner, sometimes with our competitors, believe it or not, um, to provide them with data where we have access and they don't. I, we're under no illusion to think that interoperability can be carried by any one company altogether. No one company can offer full interoperability across all of America. We have a place to play in our markets 
and then others come alongside and we play together nicely, hopefully, <laughs> for other parts of the country or other health systems. So last question is uh, about building a, a team. Um, when it comes to finding an interoperability solution, is, it's such a broad kind of question. We're being very specific now. We're saying, okay, specifically, when you come up with a solution for interoperability, you're, the only real solution would be something that's a workflow. And it's a workflow that's going to involve a number of different parts and a number of different kinds of companies. Uh, give me an example for, off the top of your head or for how MRO works right now. Give me an example of uh, the laundry list of the four or five different types of companies that need to work together and to integrate uh, their services to create a workflow, to create a sustainable solution for interoperability. Sure. So, and I think you asked the question really well in the sense that there will always be multiple solutions to execute a function. So first, whether we like it or not, the EHR companies exist and that's where the data are. So you gotta connect we got to connect with the, all of the right EHR systems. So whether it's the ambulatory players like Veridime or Athena Health or it's the big um, institutional vendors like Epic, Cerner, etc. So that's the first set of types of solutions that we got to work with. And then secondly, there's kind of platform players and we think of ourselves as a platform player which enables, we call it the pipes and the plumbing. So we provide all the pipes and plumbing of exchange and then we have to work with health plan systems, so the requester systems. So if you think about, you know, a HEDIS engine, the folks that are actually calculating the measures, we work with them so that we're providing them with the right data. An important thing that is emerging now is it's not enough to just share data in one direction. We've got to ensure that there's data that's um, value that's provided to the provider themselves so that they can actually do something to improve the care. We don't want to just measure that quality is poor or that it's improving, right. but not provide the provider with tools. So any vendors we work, we partner with many vendors today that push care gaps to the point of care. And we develop our own solutions to calculate care gaps and make sure that they're um, being surfaced up for the provider. So those are the kinds of different systems that kind of have to work together and be interoperable to advance interoperability. Mo Whitenauer, Chief Product Officer for MRO. Announcing NCQA's next big event, the Health Equity Forum, coming up March 4th and 5th, 2024, at the Westin Los Angeles Airport. The Health Equity Forum convenes state officials, advocates, and healthcare providers, showcasing the blueprint for creating and implementing statewide health equity strategies. For day one, California state officials and health equity leaders will discuss why California has prioritized health equity. They'll also share best practices for health equity collaboration. And for day two, that features a workshop and training with NCQA experts about our health equity accreditation programs. You'll determine your readiness to earn accreditation, identify challenges, and learn how to address them. If you're a champion of health equity, diversity, and inclusion, NCQA wants to partner with you. We offer opportunities that can be customized to align with your strategic objectives and your specific health equity goals. Find out more at ncqa.org and search Health Equity Forum, or you can just click the link in this episode's description. In our pursuit of health equity for everyone in the United States, 
Our discussions take off in many directions, from data management to cultural understanding. Sometimes, however, an interview holds off on the talking points and gets right down to business. This interview is a great example of that, presenting two executives from Wellspan Health, who spoke together at NCQA's Health Innovation Summit in 2023, Jody Cicchetti and Jenna Jansen. Wellspan Health is an eight-hospital integrated healthcare delivery system, serving five counties across south-central Pennsylvania. Between clinics and hospitals, it handles about 2.8 million outpatient visits each year. The community is 80% white, but 11 to 15% of that population identifies as Hispanic or Latino. Jody Cicchetti is Vice President of Quality, Patient Safety, and Infection Control and Prevention at Wellspan Health. She's an RN with a background of working in the ICU. She holds an MS in Health Systems Management from the University of Baltimore, and her certifications, her many certifications, include, among others, an CPHQ, a.k.a. she's a certified professional in healthcare quality. Jenna Jansen is Senior Director of Quality at Wellspan Health. She earned her BS and MPH degrees from West Virginia University. She's a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives and also a CPHQ. Jenna and Jody's presentation at NCQA's second annual Health Innovation Summit was called Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, Improving Equitable Access to Care. In our interview, as in their session, they had a great story to tell. Wellspan did a deep dive into their data, into their population data, found an equity disparity, and formed a strategic, careful approach towards closing that gap once and for all. It's true. It's possible to do this. It's practical. And we are here to inform and inspire you. So to get the ball rolling, I asked Jenna where the story started. I think this started, David, more in the 2017 era when severe maternal morbidity and mortality was first bubbling to the surface on a national agenda as a problem. And when we went to look at our data to say, do we have an SMM problem here at Wellspan, we realized that we had all of these different race and ethnicities collected, but how do we determine who identifies as black African-American, who identifies as Hispanic Latino, who is white. There was no policy. So we created it for that specific question we were trying to answer, which was, do we have an SMM problem here at Wellspan in total and within any certain racial or ethnic groups? And then when we got to another initiative, we realized others in our organization were mapping their data differently. So what they had defined as a person of color may have been different than how we defined a person of color for our SMM initiative. And we said, wait a minute, we need to go, we need to take a step back and we need to say within our organization, because there was no CMS mapping that had been put out to say this is how you should map it right we then had to determine what does what makes sense for us so that we can be doing meaningful data evaluation for our communities i think it starts with the wellspan leadership and specifically our chief quality officer and his direction around and prioritization around um, health equity and the foundation of looking at data and determining that uh, we didn't have an apples-to-apples apples comparison for race, ethnicity, or language, or at the time, we didn't have the data elements uh, lined. 
or collected in a standard way. So anytime that information would be pulled, it was on uh, special circumstances and would not necessarily be meaningful. So there was a um, collaborative effort, multidisciplinary effort between quality and uh, analytics center of excellence at Wellspan, the data people, to determine um, through a map policy how to establish uh, race and ethnicity in a way that you can choose eight races or 18 ethnicities or 126 languages when you're trying to select what you best identify with, but that maps down to um, a simpler selection from a data perspective under categories such as people of color. And when you, when you look at data that way, it's easier to approach, especially when your populations are smaller, as Jenna just described, they are in our, our communities, um, because then your denominator is large enough to be able to measure right. uh, more accurately where the issues are. What did you anticipate you were going to need this kind of data for? What did you have ideas of maybe that you weren't able to achieve before, but you know what, if we had more specific data or a better breakdown of data for our populations, uh, there would be other things we'd be able to achieve that we couldn't achieve now. We started with a uh, approach of what is evidence-based published information nationally. Yeah. So what is the national problems out there? The big one at the time, as Jenna mentioned, maternal mortality, maternal morbidity, and uh, neonatal death. So that was the first um, evaluation. And then after that, what other types of um, safety events did we identify in our data that we could look at by race, ethnicity, and language? Um, and there's a variety of different types of um, usually inpatient events that occur um, that can be hospital-based and what's happening in those cases and how does that look by race and ethnicity and language. And then when we started to think of approaching um, the data from an interventional perspective, how can we make a change in outcomes that will be meaningful to a population? Um, that's where we started looking at HEDIS. So um, seven years ago, eight years ago, and that's a guess, but around that time period working with payers, payers may or may not adopt HEDIS measures as they're defined. Um, they may have customized them to meet whatever program or uh, contract that they'd written, and that makes it very hard from a provider perspective to be able to submit information uh, billing to payers and then get credit for the quality of care that you're providing to patients. Um, and that changed and the NCQA measures became more of a uh, standard recognized measurement, at least in our communities, where we began with HEDIS measures yeah. and looked at cancer screening knowing that the uh, cancer mortality deaths for uh, colon cancer and breast cancer were much different for people of color than for uh, our white population. Was that revealed through using the, the HEDIS measure set? It was in, in two respects, yes. Using the HEDIS measure set 
in uh, the data that we have collected for any patients that we have treated um, or any patients that are within our patient population. And then also, um, in addition to the HEDIS data set, it was applying these methods that we talked about, about evaluating the data. How long did it take for that to come to light? To, to re I mean, was it like just one round or over the course of just one year that you suddenly, that the data started talking to you in that way? No, I think it was more of the revelation, maybe not even revelation, but once we created our system standard for how we were going to stratify our race, ethnicity, and language data, it then became the question for us of how quickly can we apply this to measures that we're already looking at as a system to determine where the opportunities exist? Because we know that they're there. Mm -hmm. um, and by having that standard data mapping and model, it made it really easy then to apply to measures that we were already uh, monitoring and looking at them through a new lens. So now we need to hear the, the story, the specific story that we've been referring to the whole time. Um, you started collecting these measures, you started getting more specific data sets that were really population focused and population targeted. What did you discover? And just to make sure we're telling the right story, there was something about breast cancer from the measure that, that you discovered in terms of a specific population. So how did, how did the story start? Sure. So I will say one key element that WellSpan has adopted, and I'm not saying that it's the right or wrong way to do it, it's just the way we've done it, was that we pulled Hispanic and Latino as an ethnicity and included it in how we stratify for race. So if you keep and look at, I think a very popular way to look at the information is you, you analyze by race and then a separate application you analyze for ethnicity. And what that does and what we saw was those who identify as white as their race, but Hispanic and Latino as their ethnicity, opportunities for seeing the disparity in care were diminished because you're looking at them as part of the white population first. So we look at Hispanic and Latino as its own race. And it was very clear from the start that there was a disparity between breast cancer screening rates for those who identify as non-Hispanic white and those who identified as Hispanic Latino. We then added another uh, layer to our analysis to say, for those that identify as Hispanic and Latino, what is their screening rate if they speak English versus if they require an interpreter? And what happened? What did you find out? Surprise, those who require an interpreter had a lower screening rate than those who identified as Hispanic but did not require an interpreter. So what did you imagine to be the, the scenario of, of what was going on? Well, and, I, and the fact that this, you know, that there's an iteration of this situation, uh, it's, it's, it's astounding to think that this is basically, you know, did you think that basically this is an issue and it's probably going on over and over and over and that's what contributed to, to the data set, you know, appearing this way? Or did you think, well, if we can, let's resolve this issue first and then as far as finding Spanish interpreters to put into the room, if we, let's resolve this first without thinking too hard about it and then we'll see what happens. So which, which was it? I, I think that when you go into a data analysis, you, you have a gut feeling of what you think your results will be. So going into it, if you would have said, Jenna, do you think that 
individuals who identify as Hispanic and require an interpreter will have a lower rate of screening than those who are white and speak English? My answer would have been yes. Healthcare is a complex system. And so knowing that it's hard to navigate when you speak the language and you understand how the system works, Mm -hmm. let alone when you add additional barriers to care there um, or things that make the system harder to navigate. So initially I was not surprised by our results. Um, I think that one of the uh, parts of the question that you asked was around assuming what the problem is, and um, Jenna will elaborate more on interventions later, but we had a lot of assumptions. We had our own bias of what the problems were. So you mentioned interpreter, and that was very key uh, to the work, but it may not have been, and part of our learning in this work overall for health equity has been uh, learning how to um, ask the community what they think is going on, how they want to receive outreach, um, what would be um, best approachable to their culture, and um, basically get their input and include them. Is that what you did in this situation? We did. At what point did you do that in this situation? Well, as soon as we saw that what we thought to be true was supported by our data, that those who speak who require an interpreter and who identify as Hispanic or Latino had a lower rate of screening, we then stopped making assumptions and said, we need to go to the people and we need to understand from their perspective, do they believe that this data is true? Why? Uh, What do they perceive about our system? Do they want to receive care from us? Why or why not? And it, it was an opportunity for us to say, we need to have some humble inquiry here and recognize that I, as a young white female, don't know the perspective of that community because I don't identify as a member of that community. And so thinking back from like the ADA, nothing about us without us, it would be um, wrong for me to make assumptions of how to impact change without asking them. And it's also possible that the issue that you're seeing is it's not that it's part of a broader issue, but that if you go to start going to CBOs, you go to community-based organizations and say, we're having this issue and this is where it came from and this is what we're seeing, and then you stop there, they might say, okay, well, there are five other kinds of professionals that are coming to us in completely different situations that are all running into the same thing, and this is what we did, and this is how we can... And as far as interpretation services, they they might be able to, to help as well to provide interpreters. Is that... Is that some of what happened next? And what, what other things were you thinking of incorporating into the solution? Yeah, there was also just the basic element of communication. So again, like stepping back and understanding the broader picture. So do these women even know what resources are available? And are those resources and communications being provided in a way that um, they can understand it at the level of of, um, education or background that they come from. So that had to be considered also. Yeah, so we, when we went in, we we started with a community listening model. Uh, So we have very strong community partnerships within our organization with our CBOs. Mm -hmm. And we asked them, would you be willing to share with us to gather a group of individuals and, and let us listen? And they all said yes. And so we hosted these community listening sessions and again, that humble inquiry. And so we learned a lot. Surprise, if you ask people, they'll, they'll tell you. Um, 
there were a lot of cultural uh, differences. Um, so being able to hear from them and then have dialogue. Uh, there was a lot of misconceptions about what the process is like, um, what results could mean. And so hearing that and being able to have truly conversations about it, I think initially that just strengthened our relationship with um, our community members and then being humble enough when they, when they shared what things were challenging and what barriers we as an organization unintentionally had in place that made it hard for them to access. Um, for us to be able to then go back and implement those changes was really important. So just talking about the Spanish language interpreters, who did you put in the room with the patients then? Were they, were they medical staff? Were you seek? Did you necessarily need to have somebody who was a clinician and was bilingual to put in there? Or did they, uh, did they meaning the community-based organizations that you worked with, did they say, you know, you just need someone in there as an intermediary uh, to translate. We have a really robust interpreter services program. So uh, the challenge for and what the feedback that we got from the community listening model is not that having the interpreter present is part of the barrier. Um, the challenge was do, indivi do individuals know that they need breast cancer screening? Uh, why are they maybe not even coming into our primary care practices? So we know that you're a patient of ours, but we haven't seen you in a certain amount of time. Why aren't you coming in um, to even be able to place that order for that screening? During the specific community listening sessions, uh, our partners did tell us that having individuals in the room from Wellspan who look like them and speak their language was very meaningful. And if, it, if we didn't have, say, a Spanish-speaking female physician who was able to do that, having people from their community organization that they trusted be a partner with us in sharing that information was really valuable. Jody, do you have anything to add? Yeah, scheduling the appointment at doing the outreach initially was a barrier. Um, how do you get people to trust once they do answer the phone, if you get them to answer the phone, to be able to open up to you and talk yeah. to you about something as personal as a mammogram um, and potentially as uh, clouded by uh, superstition or by religious beliefs or cultural influence. And we did find that there was a great importance of family dynamic in uh, what the women would be or could be receptive to. So being able to communicate to the family member uh, that they trusted helped with that engagement. Um, and then when the outreach is made, it is made by someone that speaks their language. Um, and these interpreters are highly trained um, and uh, they're not only talking to the individual about the test itself and the value of that mm -hmm. and then offering that, but they're also listening for potential social determinants right. of health barriers such as I, I don't have a car, I can't get there, or uh, barriers such as um, uh, other access to care type of right. things. But this isn't translation services. services. Hmm. It's not translation services. This is more than that. 
this is, I mean, interpretive services, but for, you know, on a, a real clinical kind of level, and as a result of being able to, uh, to uh, connect on so many different levels with the patient, they're able to do the personalized, the, the, the value-based kind of care um, that's necessary for, yeah. for every patient. I like to consider it a culturally and linguistically appropriate preventive care outreach service. So the outreach, it's not just that we speak your language, but that the individual who's making that outreach, to Jody's point, shares that understanding of what you identify with and and what your community has shared are reasons why you may not access care. And a, a big thing with the outreach as well was that it was a one-stop shop. So when we call you, not only are we speaking to you in your language and we have been trained uh, from that, that listening session and your culturally appropriate uh, feedback, so telling us about your culture and, and what's important, but we don't have to transfer you. We don't have to send you and call you back somewhere. We're able to have those meaningful conversations about the importance of screening, right. get you scheduled, get you transportation, and get you connected to financial resources to pay for that care without you having to speak to a different individual. So all in one. Um, and financial incentives and you know, what, what aspects of this are free services. And it's, it's convincing people and getting them to understand how much is available to them and how much they can take care of themselves. And they just, you just have to encourage people to bring themselves to the services because sometimes they just don't want to show up. Um, I would just add also, yes, you know, we've talked about a couple of really key roles here. Um, interpreter services, how extremely important they are um, and how talented they are. Our quality department, very important. But the clinical operational departments are really the ones that get um, patients in, uh, schedule them for appointments, provide the services. So it's working with them on a regular basis, uh, making sure that our communication pathway is um, open and occurring very frequently, hearing from them about barriers, uh, appointment cancellation, late to appointment. How can we help to resolve that based on the population that's coming to them? and. Uh, still serve that population, but also understanding that uh, clinicians and operational leaders are challenged with running a business um, and uh, providing care to a large number of uh, patients, not just one particular population. So that was really important in having that support um, and just uh, really complete buy-in to the program was very valuable. This is the kind of work that's needed in order to identify gaps and to really try to smooth things out and establish workflows that will resolve these kinds of disparities uh, and move ahead from there. So for, first of all, what are the numbers that we're talking about? What were you trying to achieve or what did you think you were going to achieve? Is it um, increasing the, the number of um, patients that go for mammograms? Is it, talk, is it just talking about screening? Is, is there something else? So we wanted to not only increase the number of breast cancer screenings completed for our whole population, but mm -hmm. try to close that gap between individuals who identified as Hispanic or Latino and spoke Spanish versus their white non not their white English speaking counterparts. And we're talking about breast cancer screening. Specifically That's what the for breast okay, cancer screening. Uh, so we 
we had an 8.9% improvement for those women who identified as Sp Hispanic and spoke Spanish. Just a year over year? It, within, uh, within one year from uh, until June of 2023. So these are our June numbers. Uh, we still saw improvement in all of our other populations. So I wanna make sure that we're calling that out that there was overall for our white non-Hispanic individuals, 7.8% improvement. Uh, Non-Hispanic African-Americans had 11.4%. So they may have still spoke Spanish, but they identified as um, black African-American. African yeah. 4.2% um, for those that had no race documented, 7% for those who identify as other, and 3.8% for those who identified as Asian. So to say that the tide still rises for all, even when you're focusing on providing additional support for uh, unique populations. So what can other providers learn? What, how can they be inspired by the situation uh, that, that you've gone through? But be specific, if, if you don't mind. I don't want to talk generalizations of, well, this is a great thing that happened and people should think that equity is real. Going over all the things that are obvious, we're talking about um, having the time, taking the time to look for metrics, look for analytics that help us to find uh, population data and then figure out how can we use the population data to start focusing on certain populations and see where the disparities are for the people that we serve and then what are we gonna do about it? How quickly can we do it, but do it in a comprehensive way that it's not just we'll do it for now and see what happens. Um, so go ahead, Jody, first, please. Yeah, I think you're spot on with starting with the data. Um, so the advice to other health systems or uh, health plans that are just beginning this is, first of all, you're, you're thinking about the right thing and you're doing the right thing if you're applying race, ethnicity, and language um, to your quality data. So congratulations, that's a great first start. Um, baseline your measurement, use uh, measures such as HEDIS measures that are nationally recognized defined the same way. Apply um, an apples-to-apples -apples comparison on race, ethnicity, and language. Consider mapping to ma make it easier on the back-end analytics perspective when you're trying to identify statistically significant differences in populations and in their outcomes. That's number one. Number two, apply it to everything. <laughs> Just apply um, uh, race, ethnicity, language, gender, age, look for disparities in each of those categories and all measures that you consider quality measures, measures of um, uh, outcome and uh, process measures that get you there. Um, so how do you know that it's gonna be a good story? Because if you choose an intervention that you know will improve someone's life their quality of life, um, or their overall uh, life expectancy, uh, that's a big responsibility and you can't wait their lifetime to be able to see if it's working. So you have to choose measures that will help you to know uh, through the PDSA cycle, uh, we're starting this intervention work, we're communicating together as a team, we're talking to our community about what they want how they want to receive it, what they value. Uh, we're um, providing that to them in the way that they can best receive um, that outreach. 
and that um, information and that service and um, then measure is it working or is it not working because mm -hmm. there's always something that you don't know uh, if you continue to monitor the performance. Right. Jenna, I, I think the relationships, building relationships, fostering relationships between your kind of company and community organizations is a very important piece of all this. Absolutely, and going to those partnerships and making sure that it is truly that a partnership, uh, that it is not your organization going to them asking questions, getting the information, and then doing nothing about it. So the quickest way to uh, eliminate trust is to ask for someone's opinion, them give it to you, and then you say, oh, that's, that's too hard for me to address, so I'm not gonna do anything about it. Uh, I bet they won't come back to the table very quickly next time. Uh, so if, if you are truly rooted in community health and building the health of your community and having positive health outcomes, uh, having that humble inquiry to ask the questions and do something about it uh, is key. And people will then start to come to you because they see you as a trusted partner uh, that cares about their community um, and that wants the same positive health outcomes for the, for the life of their, their community members. That's Jenna Jansen, Senior Director of Quality at Wellspan Health, alongside Wellspan Health Vice President of Quality, Patient Safety, and Infection Control and Prevention, Jody Cicchetti. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Now, if you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. What kinds of companies would align best with yours to create an effective interoperability workflow? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on the show, just email us. Let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 118 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate and plenty more to come. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, if you find us, then follow us. Hit the little heart thing and spread the word about the show. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show that you can then share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.